Father, I ask once again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've often thought that um, some of the, the stories, that fables that we tell our children might not be the wisest thing to do. I mean, when you start looking at these stories of, you know, Hansel and Gretel and being put in an oven and, and you know, all these things, these fables, that you think, man, as a child, it scares you to death. And I thought about that recently as I was thinking about probably the most famous children's prayer. I don't know if you grew up saying this. I don't remember a whole lot growing up saying this, but the, probably the most famous children's prayer is, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And I'm thinking to myself, is that really how we want to send our kids off to bed by themselves, thinking about if I should die before I wake? Uh, I would think that might lead to nightmares, not peace. But, you know, the, maybe in, I think that prayer was, first came out in 1737, so maybe you know, that many years ago, it was no big deal, but I would think that would be a thing to, that might make kids ponder. But whatever the case, you know, it, the reality is, at some point, everybody has to understand that death is a part of life. And of course, in our culture, we tend to ignore that. We tend to push that aside. We tend to sort of try to think that maybe that's never going to happen, but the reality is, we all know, it is going to happen. And as Paul is addressing the Corinthians, as he's coming to the end of this long letter, and he comes to chapter 15, he is talking to them about life after death, the reality of death. And he's made the point in earlier sections about how our, our, the resurrection is not just something spiritual, but it's actually a bodily resurrection. And he says to them, if, if we are not going to be bodily raised, then Christ is not raised, and if Christ is not raised... Everything we're talking about is nonsense. And so now we come to, to verse 35, and, and he starts talking again about what it will be like. And he begins in verse 35 saying, someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? That seems like an innocuous question, but Paul doesn't seem to take it that way because the very next thing he says is, what a foolish question. It's sort of like, Sometimes when the Pharisees or Sadducees, people come to Jesus, and they ask him questions purely to, to try to trick him. They don't really want to know the answer. They're just trying to, to confuse the people. And there are times where Jesus responds to them and says, basically, that's such a foolish question. Or if someone comes to you and swears that they were abducted by aliens, and you would say to them, really, huh, why don't you tell me about that? That sounds really interesting. I'd like to know all about it. And all the while, you're, you know, it's coming out very sarcastically, right? I think that's how Paul's interpreting their question. They aren't sure that they really want to know. They're just trying to confuse the issue. But Paul gives them an answer anyway. And he says, our bodies are going to be the same and they're going to be different. And in the context of that, he gives them a lesson on agriculture. And he says, when you put a seed in the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. And then God gives it a new body that he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. 
Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh. One kind for humans, another for animals, for birds, and for fish. A few years ago, we planted a garden in our backyard. And one of the things that we discovered right away was if you plant pepper seeds, you expect peppers to come up. Can you imagine what you would say if you planted pepper seeds and what came up were tomato plants? If that happened, I'd have to think to myself, either we didn't plant pepper seeds and the package was wrong, or somebody needs to test the soil for radioactivity or something, because that's just not the way it's supposed to be, right? What you plant is what you get. I mean, that's just the way it works. When, when Emily was talking earlier in the children's sermon about growing seeds and things, I mean, they planted uh, pea pod seeds, and that's what snap peas, and that's what came up. That's what, the way it works. That's the natural thing. And Paul is saying what we are is what we're going to be. It comes from that. We're not going to be bodies now and then just spirits or something else later. But he also says that at the same time, if you plant pepper seeds, it's not pepper seeds that come up out of the ground. Seeds don't produce seeds. Seeds produce the plants. And the whole purpose of putting the seeds in the ground is that they will come out, they will grow, and they produce fruit. And there's nothing more exciting with your gardening than to go out into the garden and see peppers and tomatoes and radishes and peas and beans coming up. That's the exciting part about it. And Paul says that's where it's the same and it's different. It's not that we were going to be raised to these exact same physical bodies. They are going to be transformed. What was perishable is imperishable. What was corruptible is incorruptible. There will be a splendor to it that we don't experience now. But it's not that it's going to be so different that, that we won't be able to be recognized and we won't have any kind of physical body, but they will take on a, a different kind of, of, of being. So we're going to be transformed. What he says is, we're going to be like Jesus. We're going to have the body of Jesus. That's the bodies we're going to have. When you look back at John chapter 20 and Jesus appears to his disciples, I find it fascinating that in his resurrected body, they can see him, he talks to them, they can, they can actually touch him. He has the same body, and yet, he can walk through doors. He can go from one place to another in a millisecond. There is a difference. There is a splendor to that new body that the old body doesn't have. And Paul is saying, we're not just going to have perishable bodies. We're going to have bodies, but they're going to be imperishable and incorruptible, and they're going to be glorious. Because this is what we were created for. You know, the, the, if you think about the, the real value of, of a seed is what it can grow, not just being the seed itself. And that's what we're looking toward. And that's the image that Paul gives to us, the glorious splendor of our bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. But it raises the question of what happens, what about bodies of decay? What about, what about people that are no longer have a bodily form? And, I, and, he, and he talks about the fact that, you know, we are, we are raised from that body of decay. 
And it makes me think of Ezekiel 37, when, he, when the, God takes Ezekiel to this valley of, full of dry, lifeless bones. And God says, you think I could raise those up? And, and Ezekiel says, Lord, you can do anything. So he says, prophesy to them, and he does, and the bones begin to, to rise up, and the tendons, and the muscles, and, and skin is on them, and the God breathes life into them, and they become a vast army. Think about what God does in creation. N.T. Wright says, when you think about that first creation story, you realize God can do marvelous things with dust. God can raise us up into something more glorious than we could have ever imagined, to be incorruptible. When you get to verse, verse 55, Paul talks about the fact that God is, Christ has given us victory over sin. And he talks in verse 56 about how the, the sting of death is sin. And you know how you read something sometimes, and you read it over dozens and dozens of times, and then the 200th and 202nd time you read it, it's like, oh, I never saw that before. That happened to me in this passage when he says that, because I would expect him to say, the sting of sin is death. But he says the sting of death is sin. I think what he's saying is our ultimate enemy is not so much death as it is sin. Our ultimate problem is not death, it's sin, as bad as death is. Jesus dies, but his death doesn't separate him from God. If, the, if death would, could separate us from God, then death would be greater than God. Death is not what separates us from God, it's sin that separates us from God. And when Jesus rises from the dead, he not only conquers death, but he gives us the power over sin through the cross and the resurrection. And in his return, we will have that power over sin. And I love the way verse 55, he words it. He says, he says in verse 55 that not only is the sting of death sin, but he says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That sting of sin. And I love how the message has it. Who got the last word, O oh, death? O oh, death, who's afraid of you now? I didn't think of Paul as being somebody who would trash talk, but he kind of feels like he is. And, and yet he's saying, this is, who, this is where we're headed. In Christ, we have not only victory over death, but victory over sin. And that changes everything. I think it's important for us to just step back a second and think, so what exactly is the sin over which we have victory? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that sin is really self-interest. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. If you boil it down, sin in its, in its core essence is self-interest. We tend to think of sin as the things that we do, and that's certainly a part of it. But even the, the things that we do, acts of disobedience, the acts of of hurting people, the acts of, of rejecting God, the acts of doing all these things that we do, the sinful acts are rooted 
in self-interest. I want to do what I want to do. I want life to be what I want it to be. I'm going to be the master of my life, which is why the gospel keeps calling us to surrender. But here's the thing that I've discovered about self-interest. Self-interest is boring. Self-interest is boring. You get tired of self-interest. Now, we don't often think of it that way. The way we... Here, here, the way we combat that is not to stop being self, living in self-interest. We just move on to something else. We, we can have everything we want, and it's never enough. We do that all the time. I think that's why there's so many varieties of things all the time. We just take coffee, for instance, and I'm not speaking bad of coffee because I love coffee. But you just think about all the different things that we, progressions of coffee. I mean, you know, not that many years ago, coffee was coffee, right? It was just coffee. Now you have light roast, and you get tired of light roast, so I'll move to dark roast, you get tired of dark roast, so you move to medium roast, you move from medium roast to lattes and then to mochas, and then you get tired of hot coffee, so we have iced coffee. I mean, we just get tired of it because having what we want, the way we want it, when we want it, gets boring. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons we have such a struggle with the biblical picture of eternal life is because the only way we can typically see it is through the lens of self-interest. And so when we think about heaven, we think about new heaven, new earth, eternal life, we're thinking about this is the place where I finally get everything I want. This is the place where all the things I wasn't able to do on earth, I'm going to get to do. This is the place where my, I get complete fulfillment of my dreams and desires. It, it sort of feels like an eternal eBay for us. You know when eBay started? You know, it's this online auction site. It started by people selling things that they didn't want anymore and people who wanted them buying them. And it was, it was I think a lot of it was targeted to baby boomers. Because what I noticed when it first started was so many things on eBay were things that we as children didn't get. That toy we didn't get, that game we didn't get, and we go on eBay and there it is. Somebody else got it and now they don't want it. That ought to tell us something, right? And so we, we bought it. And there's something about, I think that mindset we bring into our mindset about heaven is all these things that we didn't want, we didn't get, now we get them. When I was, you know, when I was in high school, in the 70s, Carly Simon was uh, probably one of the most popular uh, pop singers. And she had a hit song. One of her biggest hit songs was You're So Vain. You probably remember that song, right? Talking about these, these men in her life who were so vain. And what I love is her chorus that says, you're so vain. This song that is describing your vanity. You're so vain, you think this song is about you. I mean, how much more vain can you get, right? And there's something in the back of my mind that thinks part of our sinful nature is that the song we maybe would sing, if people would, that God would sing to us as you're so vain, you probably think that heaven's about you. It's not, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. The whole point of heaven is that we are rid of self-interest. 
that struggle of self-interest now that leads to the pain and the burdens and, and hurting. That self-interest in, the, in our heavenly existence, we've want God at Christ has given us the victory over that. And the hard part about the whole idea of, of, of resurrected bodies is that we practice our self-interest in our bodies. And so in the back of our minds, we're thinking, the way to be rid of self-interest is that finally we be rid of these bodies. And I think that's what the Corinthians are wrestling with. And we wrestle with that too. If I could just get rid of this body that causes so much pain, that's the center of my self-interest. But that's not the plan of God. Because he didn't create bodies that are bad. What he created is good. Our self-interest has corrupted it. But on that day when we will be transformed, the victory is not getting rid of our bodies. The victory is getting rid of self-interest. And that's why when you read in Revelation 21 and he says there's no more tears, that's because there's no more pain. And there's no more pain because there's no more brokenness. And there's no more brokenness because there's no more self-interest. And there's no more self-interest because there is nothing there but love. God created these bodies not for self-interest, but for love. That's the heart of who God is. That's the heart of the kingdom. And the glorious part of what Paul is telling us here about the resurrected life is that we will be fully loved. Just as God is love. We will have the body of Christ, the mind of Christ to love. That's when Paul goes on in Philippians 2, not only to say self-interest is our problem, but he says that Christ has solved that by self-giving love. And our resurrected bodies will be all about self-giving love because that's the nature of the kingdom. And the nature of God's kingdom does, isn't going to change. That's the, that's the nature of the kingdom eternally, self-giving love, because that's the nature of God. And everything about that heavenly existence will be self-giving love. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving everyone else with every part of our being as we love ourselves. That's why Jesus says those two commandments summarize everything else. Because that's the nature of the kingdom. That's why Lewis writes in The Great Divorce that some people, though given the opportunity to live eternally in heaven, don't want to. Because what they want is not self-giving love. They want self-interest. They don't want to give up self-interest. They want their life to focus on them. They want everything to center around them. They want everything about their existence to be them. And you simply aren't going to want the kingdom to be self-giving love. That's also why Lewis can write in The Problem of Pain... problem of pain, he says, that not only you, it's something you offer people, that it, you, it's, not a, it's not a bribe, it's not something a mercenary soul can desire, it's safe to tell the pure in heart that they will see God because only the pure in heart want to. And who are the pure in heart? Those who have God 
in the center. That self-giving love. Here's what fascinates me. Paul says in verse 57, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What I find fascinating is that Paul doesn't say, thanks be to God, he will give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, thanks be to God, he gives us the victory. It's present tense. And I think Paul is saying, on that day, we will experience that in all of its fullness. Incorruptible. Imperishable. But now, we can begin to live in that now. And that really is the call. That's what all of this is about that Paul's writing here. It's not so that we'll have more understanding of the day to come. It's so that the understanding of the day to come will change how we live now. That's what it's about. And the question that's in front of all of us is, do we want that kind of victorious living now? You would think everybody would jump at the chance to live victoriously, right? That's part of our sinful nature. We wrestle with that. There's a great Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. It's winter. It's almost Christmas. He's trying to impress Santa. And he sees Susie, his arch nemesis, walking down the street. And he picks up a slush ball. And he's about to nail her with it. And then he remembers he's trying to impress Santa. And he says to Hobbes, I really shouldn't throw this slush ball, but I really want to. But I'm going to show Santa how good I am by not throwing it. And in the meantime, Susie sees him holding that, thinking he's going to throw it at her. And she says, you're not throwing that at me. And she picks up a slush ball and nails him in the head with it. And Calvin says, ah, there it is. She hit me first, so now I can hit her. Sweet redemption. This is going to be awesome. And Hobbes says to him, or you could show Santa how good you really are by not throwing it back at her. And Calvin looks up at the heavens and says, but I don't want to be that good. <laughs> and there's something in us that wrestles with that, right? We wrestle with it because we're so absorbed with self-interest. But we forget, we, we miss the point that being, that being freed from self-interest is life. As J.D. Walt says, love, love is the sun around which everything revolves. And it's in the sun that we have life. And it's in love. Love for God, love for others, that we have life. You see, it's not even so much about being good. It's about surrendering our hearts our lives, everything we are, to God, who is love. As you think about your life, is there a place in your life where God maybe has been putting his finger on you and say, that's a spot where I want to remove self-interest from you and I want to fill you with love? Will we let him? That we might begin to live 
in the glorious splendor of his grace and his transforming life even now. Father, we pray that you will give us hearts and minds open to you. That place where you're speaking, help us take our hands off and to find the joy of being filled more and more with your self-giving love. Amen.